0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Outlier Academy, where we decode what iconic founders, renowned investors, best-selling authors, and outlier thinkers have mastered, and what they've learned along the way. In each episode, we dive deep to uncover the tools, strategies, habits, and hacks that we can all apply in our own work and lives. I'm Daniel Scrivener, and on the show today, I'm joined by award-winning designer and entrepreneur Joey Caffone to break down his brand new book, The Laws of Creativity, which includes 39 laws that anyone can follow to become more creative it demystifies creativity explaining why it's not magical it gives you a repeatable process that you can follow to become more creative and it even shows you how to become excellent at it Each of the 39 laws of creativity are illustrated with inspiring, enlightening, and surprising stories of iconic creators across history, including Albert Einstein, Serena Williams, Martin Luther King Jr., Harry Houdini, Grace Hopper, Bruce Lee, and many more. Joey breaks down how these titans of history wielded creativity to reach incredible heights joey is the founder and ceo of baron fig which is known for its incredible pens notebooks and journals like james clear's habit journal you can find a searchable transcript of this episode as well as our episode guide with ways to dive deeper at outlieracademy.com 142 that's outlieracademy.com 142 please enjoy my conversation with the award-winning designer and the author of the laws of creativity joey caffone Joey, I am so thrilled to have you on Outlier Academy. You're the founder of Baron Fig, and you're the author of The Laws of Creativity, uh, which I am holding right side up, but my video looks (laughs) flipped or mirrored the opposite way. Uh, Trick me for a second. Thank you so much for coming on Outlier Academy.
1: Daniel, I'm psyched, man. Thank you for having me. I'm ready to talk about ideas.
0: So I want to start. uh, Well, we're going to. I mean, spend this uh, this episode, this conversation, going all over this 400 plus page book and uh, your newsletters and a bunch of the other ideas that you've contributed around creativity and design. But where I wanted to start was talking about the origin story of the book. You know, I know that you spent eight years as an English you know major, so you were writing, you have a heavy writing focused background. So maybe you always thought about writing a book. Why write this book? and what was the origin story behind deciding to launch off on this challenge?
1: Yeah, I was eight years of school I did literature, philosophy, four, and then design for another four, and it was a cold roller coaster. But this book came to life or I planted the seed when I was seven years old in first grade, and I walked into class, teacher handed out a worksheet, we've all been there, you got to color it, cut it out, put it on the board, cool. So I, I am a competitive person by nature. And I wanted my worm, which was it was a little cartoon worm, to be the best worm in class. So, you know, I sat there with my arm around it and I'm coloring this thing. Oh my god, I'm talking to myself, it's gonna be the best ever. Oh my goodness, yeah. And then I cut it out, I go to the board, and I guess I took a long time because everybody had theirs up already, and they all looked the same. They were different, different colors, color with dots, but they're the same, and so is mine. I'm so, so upset I couldn't, couldn't put my. Put myself through putting that up on the board. So I turn around, I go to my desk. The teacher catches me, calls me out. And of course I said, it's all right, I'll, I'll be right there. Well, I'm sitting at my desk. I think I might've even been crying. I was close to tears, seven-year-old Joey. And I'm looking down, hands, you know, head in my hands, I see the shards of paper. And I go ahead, I decide, oh my goodness, this is an opportunity. So I draw a boom box a necklace, a microphone. I cut those out, put them on the worm, put it up. And now everybody is standing around me, dumbfounded that I had done this. My worm is different from everyone else's. The teacher I'll never forget. She looks at it and she goes, I've never seen anything like it. And from that day forward, I was addicted to what I would later discover is creative thinking. It's just doing it different. Ideas that are not the norm or a little bit remixed on what people expect. And lo and behold, you know, as I'm growing up, I start to realize that people don't think they're creative. Most people think that creativity is reserved for designers or painters or sculptors or you know others, but not themselves. And the older I got, the more angry and frustrated I got at this ridiculous idea. And so I took a ton of notes on my phone over 10 years, multiple phones actually. And eventually when I sat down to write it, the table of contents was done in a couple hours, and then I was off.
0: When you were writing the book, who did you have in mind that you were writing for? Because, you know, as a designer, I found a lot of value by reading through the book. Uh, So as someone who kind of has lived a creative life or feel like I have those muscles and flex those muscles a lot, I found it really interesting who who else did you write the book for? Who are you excited to read this book?
1: Yeah, that's a great question because you know the common knowledge uh, wisdom is that you write a book for a very specific person with a very specific need, and I think most of the time, the vast majority of the time, that's right. But I could not I could not resolve that idea with with the book that I had in my head, and I mentioned this to you at the earlier but essentially you know think of the dictionary who's the dictionary written for it's not just one person it's it's a host of types and so i challenged myself to write this book for people who think they're creative and people who don't and to constantly be looking at that from the two threads of okay how what is someone who's not creative how are they going to parse this and someone who is what are they going to get from this and so i'm glad that you enjoyed it And I have people in my life who don't consider themselves creative and they've enjoyed it. So it's it's only the early days, but I hope that over time I, I realize that I've succeeded. I'm
0: not sure yet. I mean, it seems like a weird comparison, but I love the idea, the analogy of this almost being like a dictionary of creativity for anyone, because these are all, I think that's one of the things I loved, is it's all very, I think creativity typically feels very subjective. You've done a great job of making it objective. Anyone can come, grasp onto the ideas. They're easy to understand. They're compelling. Um, It's really interesting. I want to ask a question about how you (laughs) distill down the laws for something as big as creativity. Creativity, because I imagine that that would feel like an overwhelmingly daunting task when you set off on that. What was your process, and how did you go about distilling down and arriving to the final 39 laws that are in the book?
1: It is something that I wanted to do for so long, and having those notes on my phone for so long that when I sat down, it came together within a couple of hours. And the best way I could describe it is Newton, whether the apple actually hit his head or not, he did quote unquote discover gravity and write the law of gravity. Uh, but what's important to, to take away from that is that he didn't invent gravity, obviously. You know, apples didn't float till Newton came along. He, <laughs> I haven't said that before and I love it. He, uh, he just wrote what he observed. And so for me, I did the same thing is just, you know, at Baron Fig, at this point in my career, I have designed and art directed over a hundred products from zero to consumer's hand. And I've collaborated with incredible creators like James Clear, Roxanne Gay, and so many others. And at there, there came a point where it just was very obvious how it all worked and fit together because I was really interested in not just what I was doing, but how I was doing it. I didn't invent it. I wish there were 40 so it was an even number. Everybody's like, "Dude, what are you doing? 39?"
0: No, I like. I mean, it would have it, it would have to be 39. It can't be, you know, an even 40. So it just wouldn't 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 work. Wouldn't work at all. I want to talk about, so you know everyone listening, everyone watching, please forgive me. Uh, This book is amazing, uh, as are many of the newsletters that you've published. So throughout this podcast, I'm going to read off a bunch of things uh, just because I think they're amazing and it's better that people hear your words and not me trying to paraphrase your words. Uh, But you have a wonderful line in the introduction of the book that says, what is creativity? In order to understand how creativity works, we must first understand what it is as well as what it is not. In its purest form, creativity is a force. For people listening, talk a little bit about what creativity is and what it's not, and why it is a force. Because I think that's a really interesting framing. Thank you. I wanted to
1: put it pose it in a in a really abstract way, and then I wanted to bring it back to really concrete. So the, the abstract is where I like to start because it just it's kind of like a palate cleanser. And we just talked about gravity; it's a force of nature. Creativity is a force of psychology. It's just the way our brains work. Human beings are unique amongst the entire animal kingdom because of our ability to imagine what is not in front of us. Okay. And it is essentially to be creative is our, you know, if, if you asked me earlier, you know what's my superpower as a whole human being, superpower is creativity guaranteed 100%. And so you've got this force, the psychological force of creativity that is in its simplest terms, creativity is the practice of ideas and when you are endeavoring and bringing those ideas to life it's self-expression and that's it and it doesn't need to be painting it doesn't need to be design it can be creating a spreadsheet it can be organizing your closet all of it counts as creativity
0: Great answer. I want to talk a little bit about and demystify creativity, because one of the points that you make is that creativity is not magical, which I think is a really important note. to to hit on. And this isn't from your book. I'm also going to quote from, you've got a bunch of uh, newsletters I really like um, that we're going to link to in the show notes. This one's from a newsletter that you sent out called The Truth About Creative Magic. But the line is, while the results of creativity are often magical, the process to get there is not. The practice of creativity is as reliable and unmagical as accounting or baseball or law or any other endeavor. Talk about why that's important and why it's important people understand that creativity is not magic.
1: That's one that frustrates me is while I was writing the book, people are going, oh, dude, are you going to teach us the magic? And I was always like, I am not because it is not magic. Uh, so that, that was such a sticking point to, to really get this book out. And, you know, first I'll just pose the question to anyone, which is if you think creativity is magic, if you think it's this thing that may come or may not, like the muse may or may not strike, how do people like you or me or other people, Designers, people who get paid to mostly do creative things, how do they reliably get
0: paid? Yeah, that's not magic. It's not magic at all. <laughs>
1: right. Because
0: if they didn't perform
1: every day at work, they're not getting paid. You know, no one's gonna stand around and hope that they they figure it out today and that no one's gonna pay that paycheck. So the best way that I could describe creativity uh, in this regard is what's a city in the world that you have not been to yet, but you want to go to?
0: um I really like to go to Belgium uh, I don't know any yeah, specific yeah. cities that's
1: awesome yeah. let's just call let's just say Belgium. So Daniel wants to go to Belgium. now I want to go to Belgium because we're going on this journey together. He's never been there and I've never been there but both of us can tell you exactly how to get there okay We would go outside we'd walk or take a bus or a cab or whatever it is to the airport get on a plane, fly, land, get in a cab or whatever again, follow signs, and eventually get to Belgium. And that's a guarantee, okay? So while the end is a mystery, I have no idea what I'm going to get when I get there. I can tell you how to get there every time. The creative process is the same. You follow the same processes of roads and maps and signs and vehicles, and you get to the end. But I can't tell you what it is, but I'll always be able to tell you how to get there.
0: So well said. I mean, you know, just an immediate counterpoint that I think of is every design team has a design process. You never go to a design team and they're just like, we just hang around. And then all of a sudden, random times, this idea emerges and it's fully fleshed out and we just ship it. No, every design team has a process and it is very rigorous. You know, in my experience, the better the design team, typically the more rigorous the process.
1: Absolutely. Well said
0: which I think is a good, you know, kind of, I don't know, rebuttal of this idea that it's magic. And I want to talk about that a little bit more for a second. This is another quote from one of your newsletters. Uh, And it talks about, you know, it's like, if, if, what is the opposite of magic? The opposite of magic is some sort of process or some sort of systemization. And um, you, you, you're answering a question in this newsletter and, you, and your, your advice was to lean into systemization. Do not try to avoid it or offset it. Systematize the hell out of your approach. Figure out what works for you and sharpen the process to a point. Talk about why process is important and uh, just any other thoughts you have around systemization.
1: Yeah, well, there's this this belief that you know we have left brain and right brain thinking, and a lot of people divide that in left into left brain and right brain people, and that's wrong. Uh, and so we have these you know creative types that are undisciplined, starving artists, and then we have the you know the quote unquote suits with all the the rules. And what that does, it just misleads us into thinking that. To be one thing, you must be this entire thing, which is to be creative, you must uh, you expect it to be flying by the seat of your pants. And so that person that asked that question, I could tell that they're like, hey, I just can't get a whole grasp. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And I could tell that they were not employing enough discipline because they clearly can, if you can make it a success relatively frequently, you can you should be able to over time make it extremely frequently. Okay. Once you crack the nut, sort of, it's there. You just got to piece it together multiple times, and so discipline becomes a really important factor to people who are in that creative leaning process. And then, just to put a end cap on that, when you have the other side, which I just call the suits, but the disciplined people, left brain, sometimes they can forget to let go of the process. And that's just as important as leaning into a process. And so really it's where are you on the spectrum and then finding your way to the middle, whether it's too much or too little process.
0: I want to kind of outline a basic process. Um, And this is, uh, well, I mean, this is in the book in many ways, uh, just said a little bit differently. But, you know, at a high level, you've talked about the general approach to creativity as being get inspired, research, iterate, and then finalize. And you have interesting thoughts about each of those. Just to zoom way out for a moment, can you talk about that high level kind of four step process of creativity and maybe share some ideas? Like I think your ideas around finalize are really interesting.
1: Yeah, there is a whole lot to this. Are we, are we going into kind of, we're almost going into those four laws you mentioned earlier. Um,
0: but I don't want to, Yeah, we'll come back to those. So I think just high level for this question.
1: I know, I I don't want to get too deep. But (laughs) essentially, what all of those are saying is really, you can't create something until you know what you want to create. And you can't know what you want to create until you've kind of absorbed enough information to be able to combine ideas into something that can funnel through to the rest of the process. And so what I think I would love to say here is actually you know, in terms of what do I create is really reset your mind on what creativity is in action and in process, which is um, you know, the practice of ideas. You're not creating, you're combining ideas. And so people tend to think that they're going and making this brand new thing. And then it, they're floundering because there's no handhold to actually ground yourself and then, of course, there's not without the inspiration and without the research, and you're just kind of you're pushing yourself down a funnel and really just off a cliff. So, you know, to bring it all back, basically, you've got to do one step at a time. I'm not sure if that's where you wanted me to go, but combining is really important. I and mean, I'll just give quick examples. My favorite from the book is kind of like Pokemon is our love of pets combined with our fascination for fantasy worlds. Or the iPhone is just a phone combined with a computer. And it, it really is that simple. And when you can say that in the beginning, this is what I want to make, you're able to then pull a lot of inspiration from each of those fundamental concepts to shape them down into the process. For, so just as, as cliche as it sounds, you really have to go one step at a time. You can't just jump into the what most people might call the fun part.
0: Well, totally. Or you get lost and frustrated and you, you know, if you don't, you don't have the guardrails in place, you haven't clarified where you're going. So at some point in the process, um, you know, you're just like, what is even going on? What am I creating? What does good even look like? How do I know if this is good? You know, you grapple with all those questions. And so I think the, the you know, thinking about it as a process is really important. And I want to talk a little bit about finalize. We're going to come back to this again, talk about one of the laws in the book. But uh, this is again, from one of the newsletters you, you sent out, and I just thought it was too good not to touch on for a second, and then we'll come and dive into it in a deeper way in a little bit, but you end up you know, talking about that finalizing is really choosing an end. Uh, you can improve your creation forever. I'm sure this is extremely applicable at Baron Fig. You've got products. I'm sure you're always seeing things that it could be tweaked, might be tweaked. You, you think you might want to change something about, but at some point you must admit diminishing returns and accept good enough. Can you talk just about that at a high level and why that end step is so important?
1: Yes. So um, I am going to, there there's bleed over with the law that you mentioned, but um, you know, think of um, Zeno's paradox, which is essentially if you take a distance and you divide it in half, you'll never reach the end, right? You'll just keep on dividing it in half infinitely. And that overlays very well with creating. So the very first step you take is when you've got nothing to something it's a phenomenal step forward, right? Like for Baron Fig, the first notebook that I made was actually, uh, I had an idea of what a cloth bound notebook should be back when this wasn't a thing. I went to the store, I bought it. I went to the art store, I bought uh, a painting canvas. I cut it all up and I used masking tape and I made this first version that was absolutely horrendous. But in terms of Zeno's paradox, I just went halfway to the end. And I had like I went from absolutely nothing to holding something that I was able to show some people that I was working with so that they could understand, even minimally, what I was trying to go for. What happens is, as you keep cutting that, that distance in half and half, at some point, you cannot tell that that distance is being cut. The diminishing returns are invisible. You're the only one that sees it. And at that point, that's when you just have to make a decision to stop. Because you're eventually going to, what you're doing at that point, you're not making it better, you're making it different.
0: It's so well said. I mean, I think anyone who's a designer or creative or an artist is going to resonate with that point you just said. Because there does reach a, a point in every project, at least, you know, the ones that I've worked on where I can still see the difference, but I think your point there, and it's a great one is that's great, but you need to take a step back and you need to put this through the lens of, well, somebody else that doesn't know about the pixels and this, this thing isn't vertically centered, (laughs) optically aligned or whatever it is that you're thinking about in your mind isn't there. They may not care. And so it doesn't matter. I want to bring up, this a weird parallel, uh, but uh, I have to bring it up really quickly. You talked about there uh, having cloth-bound uh, journals, and obviously on Baron Fig, uh, I, I think they're all cloth-bound. Correct me if I'm wrong. Are any of them leather?
1: No, there is are all cloth-bound, and then we have a few paper-bound uh, versions.
0: So, and I, and I know you have a strong opinion about why cloth-bound and why not leather. I would love it if you could get into that for just a second. Why is the cloth-bound important?
1: Well, there, there's a host of reasons. Um, I mean, leather is you know, certainly an animal byproduct, and pleather is just silly. And so for me personally, there's something beautiful about cloth-bound um, anything, really, that I love the texture and the feel, and I think it's a little bit more... I don't know, human is, is not the right word, but it's the word that's coming to me right now. Um, and it, at the time, especially when we made it, it was extremely unique. And, um, like I said, a whole host of reasons. Have you read something that I don't remember?
0: No, I remember, uh, doing research for this. I remember coming across a quote where you were basically like, I hate leather. I don't want leather on any of our products. <laughs> and that obviously stuck in my mind.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of, I'll tell you something that, that you haven't said, which is, I, I don't like leather for obvious reasons. It's an animal byproduct, and, you know, I don't need to contribute any more negativity to the world than I have to. But the, even the biggest reason, I just, I hate the imperfections. They drive me nuts. A little scratch here, or a little wave there. My goodness, as a designer, you know, just, and it's, it's wrong to want an, a natural material to be, uh, to have unnatural perfection. And so... As a designer, clearly I had the choice and I chose cloth.
0: Yeah, you chose well. You have a strong a strong opinion about it, which I like. I, I want to go back to the book and talk a little bit about the way that you've decided to kind of theme it and section it. So in the book, there's 39 laws, not 40, it's 39 laws uh, of creativity. There can, cannot be 40, um, but you've split it into three distinct sections uh, and you call those the laws of mindset, the laws of action, and the laws of greatness. And I felt like we just, I couldn't not bring that up because you group that intentionally. There, there must be some thoughts in your mind about why they're grouped that way. Talk a little bit about those themes, those sections, and if there's a story behind each.
1: Yeah. You know, when you write a book about creativity, the first thing that someone thinks of is the creative process. It's, it's a, definitely a keyword of sorts. And I probably started there where I listed that out. And that became the middle of the book that so those three sets of laws are foundation, process, and excellence. And I realized in doing this that these laws were not going to hit for the uninitiated. If I didn't first teach you how to think creatively, how to recognize what weird is, how to understand the value of expression, what real disruption looks like, connecting versus creating, um, facing the unknown, failing in continuity competing against yourself and the value of play and all of this. If I didn't teach you those things, no matter how well I taught you the process, it's going to go on deaf ears. And so uh, mindset became a requirement. And so I had these mindset laws, seven of them. And then the laws of action, there's 18. It's the bulk of the book. It's the creative process, which is in chronological order. You could use it as a guide to create something. And then after that, I thought, wow, now that I've done all the stuff that I want to tell you know, most people, now there's the stuff that I know that no one else knows, or that very few.
0: It's the AP, the honors course. Yeah.
1: And that's the greatness because I have, like I said, had the privilege of working with some really incredible people. And so then that became a necessity. But what I think is worth saying here, in a way the reader is lucky that I am not a – An author, a career author, because if I were, I'd probably split these into three books and charge you three times. But I'm really interested. I was more interested in just getting this idea out, which is why it's 400 pages. I could have done, you know, three, 200 page books probably. But I had the pandemic. My wife was like, if you don't do it now, you're never going to do it. And so I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And my goal was just to essentially create a picture of creativity and wherever it landed, I thought it was going to be 60,000 words. My goal was 60,000. And I realized that I was two thirds of the way through and they had you know, only 60. So anyway, that's the answer. To that. That's
0: so cool. I really like that you yeah well one I appreciate that you put it all into one book. It's slightly intimidating to look at. It's amazingly easy to read. So for anyone that looks at it and is like, "Oh my god, that the size of the book intimidates me." It's very easy, it's very fun to read. Um and I'm glad, you know, glad you didn't do it as three separate books. I want to ask a question, I uh, And it's, what is your favorite law? And and the way I want to ask it is not your favorite law for all time. Uh, Maybe you've got one, maybe you don't. Or if there's a law that resonates with you right now, because I'm guessing at various points in time, one of them is resonating with you or one of them's on your mind.
1: Yeah, it does seem like I could answer this differently every day. Today, I think the law of competition You know, earlier, uh, before this recording, we talked about the difference between people who are really good at something and people who are really known for the same thing, and that there's not necessarily uh, an overlap. You know, that Venn diagram is not not quite so... Not even close. Close, yeah. Not so similar. And I think what's a good reminder in reaction to that, because I can get frustrated uh, easily if I thought about it too much, which is that I am in competition with myself. And that's how I've always operated. And this is a new endeavor for me. I've never wrote a book till now and entering a world I've never thought about till now. And so the law of competition is going to be a great reminder going forward that people are going to do it the way they are doing it. And if I try to be like that, that's not helpful. So I need to just do it my way. And the law reads for everyone out there, it goes, do not compare yourself to others but rather compare today's you to yesterday's and strive to be incrementally better. Um, And that's, right now, I'm feeling that.
0: I mean, it's well said. I also feel like it goes to the heart of the, Uh, entire idea behind the book, which is to be you, not to be playing a comparison game, you know, but to just be, you know, almost like shut off the multiplayer version of the game. This will speak to you (laughs) and go into the single player mode. You know, it's just you. You don't have to worry about what anyone else is doing. Just focus on your own game we're going to get into gaming. We'll come back up later and later in the the interview. Do you have any gaming consoles at home? Is there a part of you? No, my there's no gaming consoles at home now, although I'm sure that'll change in time, especially we've got two young boys. Uh, One of them just got into iPad games. Which is, yeah, I'll, I'll not go down that rabbit hole, but there's some good iPad games. There's a lot of terrible iPad games just filled with ads and and just crap. Um, But the game I did grow up with playing Diablo and Diablo still has a really special place in my heart, as nerdy as that may be.
1: Diablo is <laughs> great. I've got Diablo on my Switch. Uh, highly go. recommended for kids. Um,
0: I'm sure we you know. Go. Diablo now. on the Switch. Yeah,
1: yeah. Anyway, I don't know if Diablo, but yeah. Super, super great. <laughs> they're
0: a little young. That's mine. That's that's about S- it. And then my, Mario. I've got a couple of younger brothers in Final Fantasy. The like five, six, seven, maybe eight was in our house for like years growing up. Years. Great growing games. Up. I want to have a section of this interview that was uh, very practical because we're talking about, you know, I think your book is an amazing, uh, does an amazing job about making creativity feel simple, feel obvious, feel very practical in terms of how you can apply it and how you can do it. And so I picked out four laws, uh, you know, and you alluded to this earlier that were really interesting to me that felt like if somebody listening only kind of took away these four laws, um, they'd kind of get a lot out of the conversation and they were, and we'll talk about each of these for a second, but at a high level, they are how you define the problem, how you gather inspiration, how you limit yourself to try to force creativity and how you publish imperfection. So in many ways, this is a little bit of a reiteration of what we talked about. Uh, But I want to start with this first law, uh, which is the law of precision. And I love, I love the title of it. Anyone who's a designer knows that if you're not precise in terms of what you're trying to create, get yourself into a lot of trouble. The, the law is, uh, you say in the book, you know, sharpen your understanding of a problem through investigation, peel back the layers until you are left with a single question that when answered resolves the heart of the matter. What else do you have to add to the art of precision and why is precision important to creativity?
1: Yeah, there's a lot to that. And I love that that you're pulling this up. So creativity is often described as problem solving and it's part of it the real definition is, is the practice of ideas and that can manifest in many ways. But problem solving is one of those ways. But the, the key thing is about problem solving is that problem solving is one third of the process of solving problems. And I believe we even touched upon this earlier in a different way with inspiration, but the two steps that need to happen before you do problem solving is first you need to have problem seeking and then problem sharpening. And then you have, Problem solve. So when you're defining the problem, creating deliberate and separate steps for those. So I like to, you know, in the book I talk about Tesla and how Elon Musk and Tesla have really evolved self-driving cars. And so initially, they first asked, How can we make cars drive themselves? Right. And you would think, wow, that's a great question. We're going to solve that. And so what they realized is that for a car to drive itself, it would need to parse the road and on the fly rather than a given directive. And so it went from how can we make cars drive themselves to how can help we help cars to read the road? And then when they had that question, they realized, oh, we can read the road, but there's so many variables. How is a car ever going to figure it out? And they connected them all and they made the neural network. And then it, the real question became, now that we know how to make them read the roads, how can we help cars learn so that they can do this? And uh, I'm sort of jumping around, but eventually we, it became, how can we help cars learn from each other? And so we have this exponential growth of information sharing that eventually allowed Tesla to really do self-driving cars. And so that is an example of they seek a problem, they sharpen the heck out of it, and then they were able to solve and that's the law of precision. It's it's really taking the time.
0: Yeah, it almost feels like I don't know an inverse Russian nesting doll, where you're trying to get from the fuzzy, vague, not really clear problem to something that's super precise, something that's super fine grained.
1: Oh, I like how you say that, an inverse uh, an inverse Russian nesting doll.
0: I feel like I feel like I. Oh, really you, oh don't worry. I, I'm still the Russian nesting doll is definitely something in the book somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm just taking it and, and rephrasing it in a different way. Uh, So don't, don't worry. That's your own, that's your own idea. (laughs) It's a good one.
1: Well, it's a good, I love what you said. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> so the second step so we've done just to kind of you know uh, encapsulate that so uh we've found a problem and then we've gone through all the work to try to really chunk that down from something that's coarse grain big lumpy not super clear into something that's fine and precise you know the next one and these are relatively in order and then i'm going to jump at the end to the law of good enough which is many many chapters after these but the second one uh is gathering inspiration and i love the way you framed it you talk about law of the muse Do not start from zero. Do the necessary research to collect relevant ideas. Use these as inspiration, plucking the best parts to combine into something of your own. Don't wait for the muse to strike. Reach out and strike it yourself. Talk a little bit about why um, gathering inspiration is so important. You know, I love the just the first sentence, which is do not start from zero. You say that and you're immediately like, well, of course. (laughs)
1: Uh, Yeah, well, I'm so glad that that resonated. It's often where we think if we need to create something new, every piece has to be new. And we've established that a little while ago that it doesn't. Like with the iPhone, it is a phone and a a computer. And so what you're really doing is, I, I say in the book, in The Law of Connection, where making a really great idea is you take a few fundamental concepts and use them as building blocks to create a full concept, your idea. Well, the more information you gather, the more stuff you explore, the more building blocks you have, the more likely that you are going to stumble upon a concept that you like. Seems obvious. Sometimes I wonder if I'm just saying the dumbest thing on earth because it's, when I, it's just like, that's obvious, I guess. But you know what's what I think is also important in this chapter, in addition, is that A lot of times we think that the muse needs to reach out and strike us. And I'm saying strike the muse. There's passive inspiration, and that does happen. And passive inspiration would be, I tell the brief story of a guy named George Demestral walks through the woods, some weird little things stick on his pants. He brings them home. After going through the woods many times before and not caring about them, this time he's like, "Ah, I should look at that. Puts it under a microscope. Dude invents Velcro like five or 10 years later because of that. And that's passive inspiration. Something happened to him. He wasn't looking for it and he made the most of it. And that's awesome. But when you want to engage creativity, you shouldn't wait for it. And then you have active inspiration and that's gathering it. And there's just two dimensions to it. Step one, collect. And step two, assimilate. You go into a category of something you really like. And, you know, the iPhone and the computer, uh, the, the computer and a phone is a great idea. Just gather a bunch of computer stuff, gather a bunch of phone things see what people are doing, digest them, not just as holes, but as the components, and then you have just a, a massive library of stuff to use and put together. And you can do it all in your head, which is the greatest part.
0: And this is really common, you know, to talk about it for a second, like oftentimes if you're kicking off a project or on a design team, you'll come up with a mood board or an inspiration board. And it's effectively that. You're going and pulling a bunch of things that have the vibe or the feel or the aesthetic or something that you think is interesting that you want to try to have. And you try to put that into a visual board that can sometimes look like image vomit, but, it, you know, it's a, that process is enormously helpful because you go from something that's foggy and vague in your own mind into something that's slightly more concrete because you can see it visually, you can react with it, you can share it with other people. I wanna touch on something I think is also really important here, which is this idea that, well, if I go and I take inspiration, I'm copying, you know, I can't copy. And so talk a little bit about why it's not copying to take a broad set of ideas and then you know, kind of meld them together into something unique and different.
1: Sure. There's uh, do you want me to touch on the Picasso
0: quote? Yes, that sounds great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, Pablo Picasso. Everybody knows legendary Spanish artist. And he said, good artists borrow, great artists steal. Great artists steal. That irked me for the greater part of my life. And whenever I try to look it up, I would see these pro-plagiarism blog posts about how you, know, you just take from other people, and, and Picasso said it's okay kind of thing. And I, did, I, I frankly didn't understand what the heck Picasso was talking about until one day I'm sitting on the subway, I look up, and I see an ad that is clearly inspired by a couple other brands, and I was offended. Oh, my goodness. They stole those. And then I realized, well, wow, they're doing things that the other companies were not. And it dawned on me in that moment what Picasso meant. And it's so obvious that when I say it, it's almost like, well, what else could he mean? But when you borrow, you're taking someone, but it's, still, it's something that's still someone else's. What he's saying is when you steal, you make it your own and you change it. And what he meant by that was to take what you see and bring it into who you are and everything that you are, and then let it out. And now it's yours. And it's so profound. And that's the difference between plagiarism
0: and inspiration. Well, it gets to a really important point, And I'll just go off on a little bit of a, a tangent for a moment. But you know, again, going back to this idea that creativity isn't magic, um, that it's a reliable process. Every design team in the world does this. Every design team in the world, ha, you know, collects reference libraries and puts them up. Their job, they know at the end of the day, is to take that and come up with their own spin or twist on it. Your job is to come up with something singular, something that's different, some, uh, you know, contributing a new note. But again, just going back to the point, you, you can't start from zero. You need to start from something. You know, another analogy in my mind is like, let's say you wanted to design a Victorian. Is it better to just sit down having maybe a couple vague, victorian ideas and houses in your mind and just start you know sketching as best you can or would it be better to study it and really look at all the different styles of victorians look at maybe styles in different parts of the country look at styles and from different parts in time and then at the very end you know distill that down into something that's unique and different that has your own angle or imprint on it is um i don't know what comes to mind We're halfway through. I want to talk about two more. Uh, the, The third one that I really liked and that felt very actionable is this idea of the law of simplicity. While counterintuitive, the more options you have, the less likely you are to make progress. Keep your parameters tight, your path narrow, and you will find that innovative thinking appears faster and more reliably. And so I guess my read on this is partly around, you know, giving yourself constraints and the power of constraints. And part of it is just less is more, you know, kind of reiterating that idea you need to pare down.
1: Yeah, I think what happens very quickly is people get concerned whether or not someone's going to be able to understand their idea, or they're going to be concerned if they're ostracizing a certain user, and so they throw everything in. You know, we've seen software with a thousand features that you know, people only use ten percent. That's this kind of thinking that we're talking about, and the law of simplicity is essentially calling that out. Um, the best way I. I I like to describe it. I'm getting deja vu here. Uh, we didn't talk about the field yet versus the road, but the field and the road is, in a nutshell, say I drop you in a field, 300 acres. I'm a city boy, so I don't actually know how big 300 acres is, but I assume it's pretty large. And it's huge, right? It's pretty big. And I tell you, hey, find the exit. It's a gate, and you're going to be like, which way do I go? Now, if I put you on a road at the beginning, and I say, find the end, there's only one way to go, straight. You can do that to yourself, for yourself, by creating limits and parameters so that by the time you're ready to get to work, you're just driving straight. And that has a lot to do with creating the right limits. And there's ways to do that when you're building your idea, and I really enjoy talking about the when you communicate your idea, which is something I call the attention pie. So imagine a pie that has 100 slices. And for every element that you add to your communique, you uh, divide the slices in half. And so if I, I use in the book, if I give you a flower, it's 100 slices. For a brief moment, a flower is the, the whole world for that person. The moment I tie a red bow around it, I just assigned 50 slices to the bow and 50 to the flower. I devalued the flower by half. Just by adding, I've made it worth less. And that's fine. You need a couple things when you're communicating. But what you want to avoid is not adding 10 things. And each thing only gets little 10 points of attention. And now it's so valueless that the receiver of your communication no longer understands what you're doing. So all that's to say is you know, there's value in limiting what you create and there is value in limiting the way you communicate what you create. And they can be the same or they can be different. And you can manage them. Like, for example, the iPhone is way more than a phone and a computer. We know that. It's a lot.
0: But when we communicate it that way, it's, it's easy to parse. I love this idea of a communication pie. I think I'll be using that. <laughs> I might steal that and you might see that show up in other places because uh, it is, it is a I think, a very profound, easy to grasp way to kind of understand what's happening there. Uh, last law, and this gets a little bit to what we talked about before about choosing to finish, but I just like the, the way you phrase this and um, you talk about it as publishing imperfection. It's the law of good enough. Aim for perfection and you will find yourself smothered by perpetual searching and disappointment. Instead, publish the simple simplest, clearest version of your creation and go from there. Why is that so important?
1: Oh, this is one of my absolute favorites. So there's a couple that go deep in philosophy and this is one of them. So this the law of good enough. Is if you aim for perfection, and I know people that do this, you're never going to be satisfied. You're never going to be able to hit that, the law of the finish line where you're able to say I've had enough because you're, again, creativity is a force of success. It's human psychology. You're, prevent- you're fighting your psychology uh, in that way, and you're not going to reach the destination. And so what happens is perfection becomes endlessly pursued, which is terrible. Or if you do publish it, then you now feel like you have an imperfect creation that was put into the world, which is also equally terrible. So the way I like to talk about it is think of the philosopher Plato. There's a concept that he has it's called the, we now call the Platonic Forms. And this is wonderful, wonderful idea. Where it's the idea in our head of something is the form—Plato's forms, aka the Platonic form. So let's take a circle, for example. Circle is an easy concept to discuss. In our head, a circle is absolutely perfect, absolutely perfect. Every point is equidistant from the center. In reality, everything that there are circles all around me. Like, unfortunately, everything seems to be tied to something I can't show you, but. Grab my mic, grab my light. But all these circles in reality are not perfect, but they are good enough. And that is the law of good enough, is that you have to accept that there's thousands and thousands of things around you in this very moment. I am here in this room. There are thousands of creations that someone had to say, it's good enough, and none of them are perfect. You are no different. You have to do the same thing. You have to go through that, almost like the process of grieving. There's a little bit of loss involved to say, I've done what I can, now I have to let it go.
0: Well, I love because there. I think there's another powerful idea embedded in that, or at least something that feels actionable embedded in that, which is... If you find yourself grappling with something and you're unsatisfied with it, think about the surface area. And maybe the solution is to take the surface area and shrink it way, 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 way down as a way to, like you said, like, rather than trying to have this be amazing, why not try to have this be amazing? And, you know, it seems to me like a helpful axiom that if you're frustrated by something, you can't feel like you're getting it good enough. Think about the size of it. Think about the surface area of it.
1: Right. Because you may be trying to swallow something that's a pill that's too large.
0: Yeah, totally. Which is a thing all the time that you grapple with. Everyone's got finite resources, finite time. Um, I think this comes up a lot, especially in in startups where this, you know, there's just constant tension between we want to make something that's really, really, really great, and we also need to be moving really quickly and shipping stuff quickly, and you know, trying to square those two things. And I think something I advice I give a lot is to take the surface area down. Uh, So I really like that principle. So that you know, those again, just to just to read these back. These are just four of the 39 laws, law of precision, the law of the muse, the law of simplicity, and the law of good enough, to me felt like a really interesting, actionable way to move from an idea you have all the way through kind of executing it. I want to talk about one more thing, you know, in the book there's, uh, it's full of vignettes, it's full of quotes, it's full of stories from iconic creators across history. What was the process like to research those? And do you have a favorite story or figure or icon that's in the book?
1: Oh my goodness. I have so many feelings about all of it, but it was an interesting process because actually each third of the book was very different uh, in terms of how I made it. The first third was easy because I had a lifetime of stories in my head that I just was like, you're this law, you're this law, you're this law. Boom. This is great. I'm going to kill this thing. Then what happened in the second third is I started to run out of stuff in my head. So I had to go read stories but since I still had so many available laws to, that I had to attach stories to, uh, I was able to read stories and quickly say, oh, that's good for this law. That's good for this one. It was really challenging. It was the last third where I had like 10, 12 laws that I needed to have stories for them. That was a challenge. Those took me as long as the first two thirds uh, because I had to go read story after story. That was wonderful, wonderful information, but it didn't apply to the point I was making. As far as my favorite goes, you know, the one with Bruce Lee really changed me as a human. This chapter, when I wrote this chapter, uh, it changed my life. And I won't spoil too much because this was close to my heart. But one of the parts that Bruce Lee actually would go so far to say I am accidentally a student of Bruce Lee at this point, which is... He had a, a, a philosophy called Jikundo, which is essentially the, the, the philosophy of the no philosophy. It's sort of the opposite of mastering one thing is learning a lot. And then alongside that, he had this flexibility approach to life that I didn't know was compatible with being so disciplined. And he has a famous quote, You've probably heard it, which is be like water. Water can crash or it can flow. It can be powerful or it can be smooth. Uh, you put it in a teapot, it becomes a teapot. You put it in a teacup, it becomes a teacup. And I th- before I wrote that chapter, I lived such a rigid and disciplined life because I thought, oh, that's the way that, to excellence. And when I read about and studied Bruce Lee, I realized that there's a just like um, you know left brain right brain. There is a spectrum, and there's a balance and a compatibility that has happened in. Uh, both directions. And it changed. It changed the way I go about living now. I am able to, even though I do get up early and I have my routine, I'm able to move it. Some days I remove things if my wife needs something or the dog won't go to the bathroom and it eats up another 20 minutes. And I used to get frustrated and I just let it go now. It truly changed me. I would say that this book has given me a lot of gifts Um, And I think that's my most prized gift from it.
0: It's so cool. I'm a huge uh, Bruce Lee fan and uh, I own the Jeet G- Kune Do book. I, I remember uh, learning martial arts as a kid and being really inspired by Bruce Lee. So that definitely resonates with me as well too. I, I want to talk, I want to close by talking about two things that are related to the book, but aren't the book. And those are the process of writing the book. I've got a couple questions there. Then I want to talk about Baron Fig because I can't not ask you a few questions, at least about Baron Fig. The question that I wanted to ask Around uh, writing the book is just, you know, and I grabbed some of these from your newsletters and I'll, I'll read them in just a second, but um, I, you were super openly shared how you wrote the book. So obviously you have a writing background, but what I thought it was just amazing. I always think it is helpful to kind of demystify something that feels big and magical, like your book does, and turn it into something that feels extremely practi- you know, practical and, 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 and simple. And I'll, I'll read just two quotes of things that you did to try to force yourself to write this book. So one was, you know, you talk about, this is a new Newsletter called Strategies for Personal Accountability. We'll link to it in the show notes. You can find that at outlieracademy.com. But you talk about you know that you used a habit tracker to write, and it took you 199 writing sessions at 417 average words to complete the first draft. So I thought it was just cool, and I'll I'll ask a question in just a second. But another technique that you used, it's from the same newsletter, was you talk about that you love to play video games, and when writing, for example, you didn't allow yourself to touch a game controller until you'd written 200 words, which is another. just amazing hack of, you know, again, just carrot on a stick. Um, so I want to ask a question about these writing sessions. And my question is, what did they look like? And I guess what I'm curious there is, you know, specific time of day, location, any specific tools that you use?
1: Yeah, great. I'll answer all those. And then I want to give, I think, one of my most valuable tips that I haven't mentioned. So also, well done on, you really, you really did, the work to, to pull value out of a, you know, a, a conversation. So major props.
0: Thanks. I appreciate it.
1: As far as, you know, how did I practically speaking? How did I write the book? It was during the pandemic and I still had to work a full day. And it was a stressful time for obvious reasons, running a company, figuring out the pandemic. We were all, and by all, I mean, planet earth was, we're all stressed to say the least but then I closed my laptop at the end of the day. I actually pick up my iPad and I wrote it on my iPad. I use the keyboard that uh, Apple, I think it's in the other room that Apple uh, makes with it. And to my surprise, I used a program called Ulysses, wrote it on an iPad. Never thought I'd do that. And uh, a lot of the times I was actually just lying in bed, like totally lying down, like not even sitting up. Like I was like, just had my head propped up and it was on my chest and it was just typing away. And then I was exhausted, but I was thrilled to get to this project. And I had a goal every day of 200 words. As you can see, I did 417 on average. There were some days I pumped out 2000 and there were some days I did like 201. And I was like, that is it.
0: Just hit it. <laughs> yeah.
1: But I made the book go forward every day. That's kind of the practical, you know, picture, but one thing that I think really changed the game for me is I did something that I avoided a trap that a lot of writers fall into going back. I had a rule that I would write the chapter from start to finish. I would let my wife read it out loud. So appreciate that Ariana. She read it out loud. She'd give me some feedback. I would also see in her eyes what was confusing and what wasn't. I would make my edits and then I never looked at the chapter again. I didn't even read it, ever. It was in the Ulysses. That was a dead to me. And I went to the next one. And you know, if you read the book, you can see I do speak to each chapter. So I added that later. Didn't worry about it at the time. I wanted to make progress because I know that, especially with writing, you can go back and just edit to death. And it wasn't the time. I mean, it's
0: the end of choosing when to finish. And it's like never ending finish line. Yeah. Biting in half.
1: Absolutely. So I did 82,000 words in 11 months. And actually uh, I wrote a lot because I thought that I had this idea that you lose 10% in editing. So I wrote a lot because I'm like, great, a lot to work with. Uh, Well, my editing team, four people who did a wonderful job, they loved what was there and wanted me to add more, which I did not expect. So the book ended up being 92,000 words. And I actually had to write a couple chapters after the fact, two chapters specifically. And um, it was a, an amazing experience. Nothing I want to do right now. Again, I give that a, like a decade.
0: You're taking a break. You're yeah, taking a break I'm taking a big ass break. You can come back.
1: It was rewarding. And so the biggest tip I could say is like, if you're writing something, you know, whatever section or chapter you're on, don't go back once you write it.
0: Yeah. doesn't matter. Just keep moving. Yeah. Yeah. Just keep moving. It's like, reminds me of that quote, you know, movement is life. You just got to keep yes. making progress. Cause I feel like the easy default is to just be like, oh, never going to make it. You don't feel like you're making, you know, you have to keep it. A thought that I think about a lot is how do I keep the things that I'm doing that I want to do, that I want to make progress on a positive feedback loop where I, where I'm perpetually excited to go back and spend more time doing it as opposed to a negative feedback loop. And I think that is a powerful trick to make it a positive feedback loop. Can't go back. Can't judge yourself constantly.
1: Yes, because you can just get into a place where you, you think progress is the editing of the chapter. It's not yet.
0: When the, once you've got the four-person masterful team, you know, go at it. But yeah, until you're there, don't, don't worry about it. I, I want to ask one more question, which relates back to this idea of publish imperfection, which was... And this is probably going to be a hard or difficult question, so apologies in advance. How did you know that the book was done? (laughs) And what I mean by that was, you know, you obviously, I'm guessing, have the final say. You know, it's published by Baron Fig Circus. You've got this, you know, team of editors I'm sure you respect and trust. But how did you go about making the decision to say, okay, cool? Was it using the law of imperfection and just saying this is good enough? Was it, uh, you know, what was your rule of thumb there?
1: I put a lot of trust into the the editing team. So there was someone who was editing from the perspective of marketing, just like, Hey, are your chapter titles, something people would want to read. Thankfully they were like, all of this is my, my writing, but that's what they were there for. And, you know, then someone was sort of a developmental editor along with another developmental editor. For those that don't know, a developmental editor comes in and says, here's the high level ideas that you're doing. And, Here's how they could be better. And then you have a copy editor at the end, which just cleans it all up. I put trust in them, but also, and I, I put a lot of trust in them. They're wonderful to work with and definitely would do it again. Also, I kind of was just like, I really want this out by the, the holiday 2023. I want to be done with this. 2022, I'm sorry. I want to be done with this. And so that was a driving factor, really. It's just like, there's a debt. like, I'm not doing this forever.
0: I mean, this is like using constraints. You use constraints yeah. on yourself. And I also
1: wanted to finish by my 35th birthday, which was last, uh, December 11th. And so congratulations, sorry, my first draft. Thank you. So I was like, all right, first draft's done by my birthday. That's my gift to me. And I hustled the last two weeks. I got like three chapters in two weeks, which because they were so difficult to find stories was quite a challenge. Uh, and then the editing and blah, blah, blah. But to me, I think it, it really is good enough. Like I can eventually, I put this out in the world. I could, if I want to, make a second edition. And there, I got to the point where I was just diddling with things that no one's going to know but me. And I, 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 being so familiar with the process, I sort of just knew uh, this is the time, time
0: to. Makes Wonderful. sense. No, makes sense. You, yeah, you decided when there was marginal utility. <laughs> I like the term diddling. I think any designer, again, is gonna resonate with that. You're, you know, everyone spent time in your files being like, oh my God, what's what am I even doing? <laughs> I, I have made the same change back and forth about 20 times and I'm right back where I started. Okay, I could ask more questions about the writing process, but I'm gonna stop there. I wanna ask a couple of closing questions about Baron Fig and where I wanted to start and uh, apologies if I did not find this in my research But what is the origin of the name? And is there a story behind landing on Baron Fig?
1: Okay, I've got an answer you're not going to like, but I've got a (laughs) redemption answer to follow. So I'm no longer talking about the source of the name. I'm not telling people anymore. However, it is out there for people who are curious enough to find it. I stopped talking about it.
0: Well, it's a beautiful name. It's a beautiful, I mean, it's a beautiful name. It's also an interesting name. My thought was it came from just the the classic juxtaposition of two very different, interesting words, smashing them together. But I will go and do my research and that's a a fine answer. I wanted to ask uh, just a question, you know, uh, one of the things I came across doing the research is uh, just the fact that, you know, you've been working on Baron Fig for a decade. And I told you before we started, I think I stumbled across Baron Fig for the first time maybe five years ago. My wife is a writer. She's an average. journalist. She really loves finding nice journals and nice pens. And uh, one year for Christmas, I wanted to get her a nice pen, found an article that was like all of the nicest, the 15 nicest pens, uh, you know, kind of edition. And Baron Fig was at the top of the list. And that, of course, then kicked me off. And I've, I've shopped on the website many, many, many other times. But, you know, you've been working on it for a decade. You've had a lot of success. You know, you've released 100 products. You're in 300 plus stores. You've shipped to 80 countries. Did you think any of that was possible when you started Baron Fig? Um, And what were your ambitions uh, when, you know, was it just getting it off the ground? What were your ambitions in the very beginning?
1: My ambition was to do better this year than I had done last year, which has always been a guiding light for the company. And beyond that, you know, I of course have goals and I have phases and I have all sorts of, you know, internal things that we talk about but really at the end of the day the most important thing is being happy doing what i'm doing and having a team be happy with what they're doing and really i did focus a lot on just how can we just do better than last year and every year we would list all the cool things we did and it's like all right let's top that list i did not think we'd be here although i have to be honest with you i'm not I'm not, if I'm just talking about Baron Fig, I'm not satisfied. I'm not satisfied. There's, I have a specific goal about being the company for ideas. And I think we've only scratched the surface. And so I'm sure a lot of founders say the same thing. Oh, yeah, it's good, but I've got more. And I think what that's, that part of me is very typical. I think what's atypical is that I'm also just, extremely grateful and I am able to pat myself on the back. And I'm usually the one reminding everyone else, like, Hey, we did this, we did this really awesome thing. We're cool. Enjoy that. Uh, if that answers the question.
0: No, it definitely does. I mean, I think any founder can, you know, resonate with that idea that you're constantly uprising in your mind what you want to create. You know, I'm sure 10 years ago, you didn't see this barren fig. You know, this barren fig came into existence as you were in the process. And now you see a very different barren and fig and you're off chasing that new destination and horizon, which is really cool. I want to ask a couple of kind of processy lessons learned questions, and uh, one of these came from, you know, again another newsletter. We'll link to it called "The Highs and Lows of Creating Baron Fig." Um, but you talk about one of the challenges, and you know, the biggest challenge is handling the pulls of a dozen directions in a given moment. There's always something that can be created, or improved, or fixed. It feels a bit like whack-a-mole. This past week, I've worked on things as large as the future of the company and as small as adjusting a font size on our website by updating a line of code. Uh, And the question I wanted to ask was, I think any founder can relate to that polls in a dozen directions and that whack-a-mole reality. Do you have a system or filter for deciding what mole to whack and what mole to leave?
1: We do, actually. Great question. Ever since we started the company, I've posed a challenge to the team. You're familiar with Pareto's law or uh, the 80-20 principle that's often referred to. So for anyone out there that's not, it essentially says 80% of your results comes from 20% of your efforts. So I hypothesized, posed a challenge to my co-founder at the time. I said, what if we just do the 20%? and just not do the other 80% that only gives that little final chunk. And so we've operated on that since. We've oscillated between f- being really good at it and being not so good at it. Sometimes you can get caught up for sure. But when I am in a place where there's a lot to be done, that's the first thing I think about you know, where, the 80-20 and what's the biggest return. And also you know, a question I ask myself more and more is, should I be doing this? Should I be doing this? And it's hard because when you start when you start a company or when you start anything, you have had to do so much. You're familiar with this, I'm sure. And so you end up accidentally having a lot of skills that can be used at any given time to, to achieve certain things that the company needs. And so you kind of get, if you're not careful, you can really be defaulted to. And that's... That's the challenge I'm facing right now, which is what I wrote in that newsletter. Is I, I need to stop playing whack-a-mole so much, um, and really, it's been ten years. I think it's time to make a bit of a dramatic shift in how I approach.
0: Yeah, it's time to close the whack-a-mole chapter. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> but I do, but I, do, but I do like. I mean, it feels like they're the, the you know, the tangible thing, or at least what I'm hearing from that is kind of the two lenses or filters are, is this part of the 20 or is this part of the 80? It's filter number one. And then filter number two is, should I be doing this? Or should this be somebody else on the team? Uh, Which I think is is a really powerful question to ask. I want to ask a couple more questions. One of them is around creativity versus business. This one really resonated with me. I've, you know, as a designer, I think a lot of designers feel like I don't understand business. I don't get business. You know, I'm not interested in business. Now, obviously, you're someone that's grappled with both of those, and you're involved in creativity and business all the time with Baron Fig. Uh And the quote from uh, from one of the newsletters is, creativity and entrepreneurship have a lot of synergies, but they can just as easily work against each other. I have a passion for making things. It's a borderline obsession. Because of that, Baron Fig was born. And together with a team of similarly passionate makers at Baron Fig, we've given birth to many more products. But there are times, however, when our passion for creating works against us. And I thought it'd just be interesting if you could just talk for a little bit about creativity versus business as this powerful dichotomy and how you navigate and balance those at Baron Fig.
1: Creativity versus business. It's funny that these these newsletters are are they're snapshots of what I'm facing at a given time as well as me trying to answer these questions.
0: It's the tree rings.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And it's, it's it's totally the tree rings. And at the time, you know, I'm, I, I'm a designer. We've established that. My COO, Jay Desai, I've known him since we were 15 years old. We've been roommates. We've gone on adventures together. We've almost died together. And he's a mechanical engineer. We are creators before business folks. But we are, at, our, at work, we need to be f- business folks before creators, essentially. Uh, And that's not an easy thing to keep in mind sometimes because creating is a lot more fun than fixing. And clearly Baron Fig wouldn't exist if we couldn't create, but if we don't fix after a while, Baron Fig won't exist either. And, you know, I wrote that during a time in which we had really him and I had a conversation and we talked about, okay, it's time to clean up a bunch of things and neither one of us were looking forward to it. And we were, the right people for that role, uh, that responsibility. And so that was on my mind a lot about, wow, how being a maker is in direct contrast sometimes with making and business are and uh, can be in di- direct odds sometimes. And you have to choose something that you might not be passionate about. Uh, like for example, you know, I had an, a very interesting launch of Bearing It's ancient history now, but when we launched the first Baron Fig website, it was ugly. I didn't have enough time to make it nice between all the other things I was doing. And I remember accidentally getting wind of all the negative comments that was going through the design community at the time, including people I knew kind of well. And I didn't take it personally uh, at all because I thought it was ugly too. If someone had said, dude, this is ugly, I would have been like, that's ugly. But I remember making that decision and it was a formative one where at the end of the day, I I, I, really, I made the call that I am the, the founder before the designer. And that was tough, but it's been for the better.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seemed, I, I like that... Um... That analogy you just used of, you know, the founder versus the designer. It is like you have these two minds, these two perspectives, you know, contained within yourself and they have to kind of debate and sometimes one trumps the other and it may not be something you love every single day. I want to ask one uh, final question. Thank you so much for all the time today, Joey. This has been so much fun for me. Uh, I hope I think it'll be you know uh, I hope it's so much fun for everyone listening. Uh, we've covered a ton of ground today. The question I want to you know ask uh, to zoom way way out. You know, you talked about this idea, Baron Fig's not where you want it to be. You want to have this uh, company that's about ideas. Let's jump forward ten years in the future. Baron Fig has been wildly successful and has executed against that. What does it look like? What what has Baron Fig accomplished? What do you hope it stands for in 10 years time?
1: I know the answer. Hands down. I'm sort of like, how much of this do I want to say?
0: That's right. That's right.
1: (laughs) I'll say this.
0: Be as careful as you want.
1: Yeah. I'll say that um, what Nike is doing for the body, I want to do for the mind. And I haven't achieved it. And I hope I will in another 10. I might not. Uh, and it might not be Baron Fig, It might be something else. I hope it's Baron Fig, but I think regardless of what I am doing, there is I have unfinished business with that idea. And uh, my dream is that I hope by the time I'm done with, with all of this living, that kids will talk about thinkers and the thinker that they want to be like as frequently as they talk about the athletes that they want to be like. And that not only can they just look at a book cover and say, I want to be like Stephen King or something, but that there's a forum for it. There's a, there's a place for it. There's a culture for it that's bigger than um, – that's similar to how athletes have become role models. And that really, that drives
0: me. I mean, I love that aspiration. I also love the idea, you know, if the first decade, we've put that behind us, you're moving into decade number two, the title of this sequel is Unfinished Business. <laughs> and, <that's, laughs> yeah. and that is the story that's going to play out over the next decade. We'll Let's see, we'll see. Thank you so much for the time, Joey. This has been so much fun. Uh, And just a reminder, you know, most of this interview, we've been talking about uh, the laws of creativity. Um, Highly, highly, highly recommend it. Uh, It was so much fun to read. I uh, don't normally say that about books, especially nonfiction books, and I read a lot of them. Uh, So it's truly great, Joey. Thank you for the time today. I appreciate it. Well,
1: Daniel, thank you. Uh, I mean, time is the most valuable thing there is. And you've given me big chunk and you've done it exceptionally well. And I mean that, or I wouldn't say it just like what you said about, uh, enjoying the book. So thank you. And for those of you who have made it to this part listeners who have gone in for their hour and 13 minutes or so, or wherever you end up, um, you know, thank you for spending your time with us. Uh, I appreciate that as well.
0: Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Joey Cofone on Twitter at Joey Cafone. That's Joey C-O-F-O-N-E. And you can subscribe to his newsletter, which I highly recommend at joeycafone.com. And you can also see all of Baron Fig's incredible products at barrenfig.com. You can find a searchable transcript of this episode as well as our episode guide with ways to dive deeper at outlieracademy.com/142. That's outlieracademy.com/142. For more from Outlier Academy, follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and TikTok. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com/outlieracademy or visit outlieracademy.com for more incredible book club episodes covering New York Times bestsellers including The Wires of War by Jacob Helberg. Several short sentences about writing by Verlin Klinkenborg, Impact by Sir Ronald Cohen, Philosophy for Polar Explorers by Erling Cocky, and many, many other incredible books. We'll see you right here with a brand new episode of Outlier Academy next Wednesday.